Well, it is good to, it's good to be with you all this evening, especially to talk about this particular topic because um, I sometimes don't understand 21st century politics or the political landscape, but I think I do understand a little bit about the ancient world, the first century. In fact, I actually feel much more comfortable in the first century than I do the 21st century. Uh, having read and spent time and worked with archaeologists and, and my readings, I, I think I've got a handle or a little bit of a handle on what was going on in the first century. So I was asked this evening to speak about the political realities of the first century world and about some of the political players and Jesus' response to the political world in which he found himself. Well, of course, that world, very much like our world, that world was a very complicated world. So to start with, I try to f figure out a way to give you a simplified way to begin to conceptualize the world in which Jesus found himself. And I did it by, I'm, I'm going to start by way of a very visual aid model. All right, a very, very visual aid. Does anyone have any idea what kind of bottle this is? Fishbowl. It looks like a fishbowl, doesn't it? If ink, exactly. On the other side it says Waterman's Ink. This is a uh, bottle from about the 1940s and one of my little hobbies that keeps me sane is um, refurbishing vintage fountain pens. Now, I, 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 am, I am a techno nerd. I love new technology, but I love the old technology too. And so what I have here is a 1980 no-nonsense Schaefer fountain pen in stainless steel. I could go on and describe it for you, but I won't. Uh, but in the midst of learning about fountain pens, I also get vintage ink. I, you can still find ink that's 50, 60, 70 years old and it's still good. So this was one of these old ink bottles put out by Waterman in the 1940s. But the shape of this, this shape, is the perfect model for understanding Jesus' world because this is the way the demographics broke down. Let me explain what I mean. In Jesus' world, there really was the 1%. And if you could think of this cap, that's the 1% in Jesus' world. This was the emperor. It was the emperor's household. It was those who were under the emperor, the kings and puppet kings which he employed. This, this represents the 1% of Jesus' world. This represents the other 90%. There was no middle class in the first century. It did not exist, which is ironic today because we read the biblical text, many people do, from a middle class perspective, and we try to interpret from a middle class perspective, they never would have because there was no middle class. This 90%, this bulge that you see right here, peasants. These were the peasants that lived in the first century world. And under them, this very last group, if we think about the base of this, which is smaller, about 10% of the population is what you might call the expendables. These were people that fell off of the, the grid. These were 
the prostitutes, lepers. These were the ill, the disabled. Actually, the very class that Jesus speaks the most about would be this lower 10%. This is where he spends his time. This is who he talks about. But when you think about this model, this is the way to conceptualize the ancient world. There's one other thing to conceptualize when you think about it. The 1%, everything this 90% had goes here. Almost every single thing. This group attempted to extract from this group everything except the bare subsistence to keep this group going just so that it could produce and make more. That's the way you want to visualize this world. The flow was all one way into this group. And there's some really good biblical texts that kind of illustrate that for us. And I want to highlight some of these things that I'm talking about by biblical texts that, that illustrate it, but we maybe wouldn't think about them in that way. This is a, a text, a biblical passage that comes from Revelation. One of my favorite passages of, uh, one of my favorite books of the New Testament. A book that's been used and misused and abused, but a great book. In chapter 18, verses 11 and following, there is a lament. And in this lament, the merchants of the earth are mourning over all the things that they cannot sell anymore to Rome, to the 1%. So listen to their lament. The merchants of the earth weep and mourn for her, that is Rome, who has fallen. Since no one buys their cargo anymore, then listen to this cargo list. Cargo, cargo of gold, silver, jewels, pearls, fine linen, purple, silk, scarlet, all kinds of scented wood, all articles of ivory, all articles of costly wood, bronze, iron, and marble, Cinnamon, spice, incense, myrrh, frankincense, wine, olive oil, choice flour, wheat, cattle, sheep, horses, chariots, slaves, and human lives. That list, all of that, all of the list of that cargo are things that flowed into Rome. Everything flowed into Rome. They took every single thing. They and their retainers or their puppet kings. And that gets us to the area of Galilee. Galilee helped supply all these kinds of luxury items back into Rome. And also some of them stayed there in Galilee with the puppet king, or I should say the puppet ruler, whose name was Herod Antipas. Whenever Herod the Great, one of the actors on the first century, whenever Herod the Great died, he left his kingdom to three of his sons. The son in the northern area, in the area of Galilee, his name was Herod Antipas. He's one of these key players in Jesus' day. You need to know this about Herod. Herod had two capitals. Now, you think for most rulers, one capital would be enough. He has two. He has a capital that's inland in Galilee called Sepphoris. 
and he has a capital that is on the Sea of Galilee called Tiberias. Let me tell you what his policies were and why he had these two capitals. First of all, his policy was to have luxury goods for the elites in these cities. So, what do the elites love? Wine. Wine. So what they would do is, the elites, uh, well, and cigars, if they had cigars, they would smoke those with that. Uh, but, but wine, wine was high on their list. So what do they have, the common average person, these 99%, these, these peasants, what do they have to do? They have to, t they tear up their fields of wheat and barley and grains, and they have to plant vineyards. And even now, archaeologists, if you go into the area of Galilee, you will find these huge villas that are surrounded by these uh, wine presses. So here are these villas with wine being produced, and all this wine is flowing into Sepphoris. It's flowing into Tiberias, and it's flowing into Rome. But these people trying to live on subsistence existence, they aren't getting the bread they need. They aren't getting the food they need. So Herod Antipas, in a way, was the CEO who owned the monopoly on bread. He also owned another monopoly. Why did he build his city there in Tiberias? Because it's on the edge of the Sea of Galilee. He controlled the fish market. So bread and fish, monopolies, controlled by the state. So these people that we're dealing with, these 99%, what could they expect? They could expect to be hungry. They could expect to be indebted. This is why the biblical text has so many stories about people being in debt. Why Jesus tells parables about day laborers these individuals who are working or looking for work during the day, they've lost their land. They have no other place to go. Now, the response. What's a response when you are hungry? What's a response when you have lost your land? What is a response to incredible taxation and tribute? The response, to resist. And there are different ways you could resist. One of the ways that individuals would resist in this day and age was by way of violence. That was a very viable way in the ancient world. Those who had and extracted from you, those individuals, you could do violence to. You all are familiar with the story of the parable that we refer to as the parable of the Good Samaritan. Most of the people who would have been hearing that particular parable would have not thought kindly of that person who is beaten and left in the ditch. Because evidently he was a trader, someone who trades and sells and buys and who profits. So he gets beaten up. Who does he get beaten up by and left in the ditch? He gets left in that ditch by the people that have nothing. These are bandits who have beaten him. In fact, if you were hearing this story, Jesus was telling, let me tell you who you're cheering for in the story. The guys who beat this guy up because they're probably your uncles or your brothers or some of your relatives. You're going, all right, he got what he deserves. That was the way you would respond. Violence. 
sometimes what would happen in this day and age? Terrorism. Terrorism. It's a, in Jerusalem, when they would have these incredible festivals that would take place, especially Passover. Passover, when it would take place, the city of Jerusalem, which was a town of about 50,000 in the first century, would swell to 150,000 folk. These people coming in. It was the best time to do what? Make a demonstration against Rome. There was a group. There was a group, for example, called the Sicarii. Sicarii translates as knife men. And what they would do is, in their robes, they would hide these knives. And in the press of the crowd, there in the festival time, when everybody's jostling together, they would get very close to one of the, one of the high priests who were collaborators with Rome. And some of the priesthood, they would get close to him, they would pull out their sicari, plunge it into him, withdraw it, and then fade back into the crowd. They would do what they would call a demonstration effect of terrorism. Same thing that we have today, they were doing there. So one of the ways that people responded in this day and age to the political situation, the inequality, the unfairness of this day and age, was by violence. But then there's Jesus' response to the political situation. And be assured that Jesus was an extremely political person. There's absolutely no question. We often talk about the kingdom of God, or we use that phrase, the kingdom of God. If you want to capture what that phrase really means, call it the empire of God. The empire of God versus the empire of Caesar. Whenever Jesus was talking about the kingdom of God, the empire of God, he was in direct conflict with the empire of Caesar. This is a clash of two kingdoms, two empires. And that the gospel writers know this, absolutely without doubt that they know this, Matthew puts it right out there in the beginning with the birth narrative in Matthew. Jesus and his birth bumps up against Herod the Great, the kingdom. Here are two kingdoms coming in conflict with each other. It doesn't matter which gospel you pick up. It is a political gospel that is there. So how does Jesus respond? What are options? I think Jesus found three different ways by which to respond to the political realities of his day. The first way he found to respond is what I refer to as the prophetic. Jesus illustrated that both himself or others could do prophetic actions against the powers, the political powers of that day, those who are the powers to be. One little example. In the Gospel of Mark, in Mark chapter 12, in the 12th chapter, we have the story of the widow who comes to the temple. And as she comes to the temple, Jesus commends her. So hear, hear these words. Jesus sat down opposite the treasury, watched the crowd putting money into the treasury. Some rich people put in large sums. A poor widow came and put in two copper coins, which are worth a penny. Then he called his disciples and said to them, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who contributed to the treasury. For out of all 
the contributions. They have contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything that she has. We often read that story as, as the way I hear it, and the way preachers preach it, they'll say, oh, what a good widow. She didn't have much money, and look how she gave it. Oh, she is such a faithful widow. Whatever you have in your pocket, give it this morning to the church. It will be honored. Give, give, give. That is not what this story is all about. This widow has two coins left. What does she do? She doesn't gently just kind of walk, <laughs> drop in her coins, and gently walk off. I think she takes those two coins, stomps up to the treasury, looks around and says, you have taken everything I owned except these two stinking pennies. Guess what? Have them all. She throws them in and stomps off. That's prophetic. Because what's the temple supposed to be doing for widows? There should never be a widow that has nothing but two little coins left. The temple takes care of widows, of children, of the vulnerable. That's what it does. Except the temple here, again, was collaborating with Rome. And in fact, in this very next, in the very story before this, just before this, notice what the writer of Mark says about the synagogues and the rulers of synagogues. In verse 40, just before this, the verse just before what I just read, they, the scribes, they devour widows' houses for the sake of appearance and long prayers. They devour widows' houses. This was a prophetic action on behalf of all those who were losing. She made prophecy. Let me give you one more that Jesus does, how he makes a prophetic statement. You always know a story is important in the biblical text when it's told more than once. The story I'm going to tell you is not told once, twice, three times, four. It's told six times. It's told more than the resurrection. What story is told in the Gospels more than the resurrection? The feeding of the 5,000. You know it's an important story when it occurs six times. So Jesus says to his disciples, I want to feed these 5,000 people. How are we going to feed them? And they find someone who has five loaves and two fish. And Jesus takes those, blesses those, and feeds 5,000 people. Now, do you remember what I said about Herod Antipas? Who controls the bread? Who controls the fishing industry? Herod, guess what? This is a slap right across the face of Herod Antipas saying, you don't control it. God does. Give us this day our daily bread. That is a political statement. That is Jesus' platform. Uh, there are a lot of platforms out there. Uh, one thing I, I've done recently, I went and I read the Republican platform. It has 66 pages. I went and I also read the, uh, 
uh, Democrat platform. It has 35 pages. And I read the Green Party platform. It wins. It has 75 pages. <laughs> it's the longest one. This prayer that Jesus utters in the Lord's Prayer, that really is a political platform. Give us our daily bread. Jesus is in a prophetic action, is saying against the powers. It's not yours to monopolize the bread, the fish. So one way Jesus attempted to speak to the powers of his day, the political realities, was by prophetic action. And certainly today, I think we can think of some prophetic actions that are taken by individuals around this country to try and say, this is wrong. This is absolutely wrong. Uh, Occupy Wall Street kind of comes to my mind when you think about it. They're saying something in a prophetic way about a situation. Build the Mexican wall. That's wrong. Yeah, right. So, so, so how does one, again, what you do is you make a prophetic action against it. Another way that Jesus does this, Jesus is a subversive. He tries to subvert the political system of the day. Now, Matthew chapter 23. In Matthew chapter 23, we have, this, uh, we have this description of Jesus when he's brought before Pilate and the accusations that are raised about why Jesus is being brought to Pilate. Three accusations were raised against him. In chapter 23, the assembly rose as a body and brought Jesus before Pilate. They began to accuse him, saying, here are the three things. One, we found this man perverting our nation. Two, forbidding us to pay taxes to the emperor. Three, saying that himself is the Messiah. I just want you to hear number two. What was the accusation? Forbidding us to pay taxes to the emperor. Now, if you ask most people, why did Jesus die on the cross? Almost all of them will give you a theological answer. He died for my sin. Well, that's true, theologically. But it's very clear that if this accusation is true, he died because he was trying to subvert the tax system of that day. That's what he was doing. He is a tax, setting up a tax rebellion. Now, he does that in very clever way. In chapter 20 of the Gospel of Luke, they tried to tra tra trap Jesus about taxes. And they said to him, uh, should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? Have you ever noticed, I should say this, have you ever noticed the Gospel of Luke is filled with tax language? It's filled with it. In chapter 2, Caesar Augustus sends out a decree that all the world should be registered because of taxes. Taxes. That's, it begins with taxes in chapter 2, and it ends with taxes here in chapter 23. So in chapter 20, we have this story where Jesus is asked the question, should we pay taxes? Should we not? Jesus says, mm, show me a coin. They show him a coin. Whose image is on that? Caesar's. And Jesus has one of these great sayings. Render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar, and unto God the things that are God's. Now, that's a clever saying. 
But what is he really saying? What he's saying is, not, he's not speaking directly. He's speaking indirectly. When you are a peasant and you're up against the powers to be, you never speak directly. When you're being subversive, you always have to speak in riddles, in parables, around the edge, so that people kind of go, what was he saying? Did, was he saying what I think he said? Well, I'm not quite sure. What do you think he said? Well, I, I don't know. That's what Jesus was doing. Render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar, and unto God the things that are God. So people could go away and say, well, yeah, said, he's, he's telling us we need to pay taxes. No. What in this world does not belong to God? It all belongs to God. So render to God what is God's. It really is a subversive message. And to subvert the tax system even more, what is one of the special groups that Jesus went to? Tax collectors. You can read through the Gospel of Luke and the other Gospels, and repeatedly, Jesus is there with tax collectors. They get, they get kind of pulled out as a special group. And in fact, Jesus is specially condemned because, well, you know what he's doing. He's, he's eating with tax collectors. Why is he eating with them? Because he realizes this is a group that is actually enforcing Rome's will on the people. If I can change these people, I will make the peasant's life better. And so Jesus goes to subvert the tax collectors. And that's why in the Gospel of Luke you have this great story of Zacchaeus. Jesus got to him. And what does Zacchaeus do? He changes. You see, tax collectors had one incredible tool that they had that made them powerful over the peasants. They could write. They could keep accounts. And you don't think this is powerful? People who cannot write get taken advantage of. Those who do not have literacy, they are, they can be burdened by those who manipulate the system with the pen, with the word. So Jesus went to this group, went to tax collectors, and he transformed them, and that way they're able to assist and undercut and cut Rome out of what Rome was taking from the folks. So subversive, was Jesus subversive? Absolutely he found ways to subvert the system. Was he prophetic? Yes. But he found another way also. He emphasized covenantal relationships. Covenantal relationships. Because this world was really was falling apart, people were hungry, people were being overtaxed. When all of this happens, here's what happens. You lose your land, you lose family, the whole social system begins to fragment. Nobody trusts anybody. Oh, you need something? I can't give anything to you. I've got to save it over here. Whoa, I don't know about you. I'm... The whole system is fragmenting, and Jesus says, we've got to go back to a covenantal relationship with each other. This is why he says, after the first great command, which is to love God with all your heart, all your soul, with all your spirit, to love God, he said the number two command is love your neighbor. He was saying we will only survive this political crisis of time if we find a way to live in covenantal 
neighbor relationship. What I have, I share with you. What you have, you share with me. We look after each other. We'll take care of each other because the system won't do it. The system's broken. The system is against us. So those are the three ways I think that Jesus reacted to, the, to his political environment of his day. Now, I, I've simplified it a bit because his political environment was very, very complicated, as complicated as ours. But he was finding ways to try and help and mitigate and make it better in the area of Galilee. And he brought his message to Galilee, this rural area. There's where it starts. But notice what happens when he moves to the urban center, when he moves to Jerusalem. His message may have been difficult for those people in Galilee, but the minute you move to Jerusalem to the power seat, you almost always know what's going to happen to people that have a prophetic message, a subversive message, and this covenantal. Uh, Jesus does not get executed for simply saying, we need to love each other, we need to have, you know, be with each other. He gets executed because Rome very clearly heard the subversive element, the prophetic element within his message. So that's a little bit of the overview of the political world of Jesus.